glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, would you stand with me, please? Genesis 15, and we'll read verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad, and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And our verse for the text today, verse 6, And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Thank you. You may be seated. In Galatians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, will reference this text of Scripture in order to establish that no one is made righteous by performing the demands of the law of Moses. The law of Moses, by the way, the law that God gave Moses to govern the children of Israel as a nation, to govern the families of the children of Israel, to govern the individuals of the children of Israel, was a perfect law. No human law has been better written than the law of Moses. None. Uh, U.S. law, Roman law, doesn't even hold a candle. The best, the best places of, of, of U.S. law are where it mirrors Mosaic law. I'm talking about law. But how do I misunderstand this? Law doesn't make people righteous. Law reveals that men are sinful. I sat on a jury, young jury, uh, I, I hate to say, but we were, and we went back and forth, and one of the first things, and this, this man ended up being presiding over the jury, and I won't go into a lot of detail, but he presided over the jury, and he wanted us, as a jury, to come back with um, an, uh, a rebuke of the law that even brought the case before us. He said, this is a bad law, and our decision needs to reflect that and we need to retort back at the law because this is a bad law and he said you know it's law and he basically said law makes good men i said no 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 yeah law doesn't make people good law reveals that they're bad and of course i'm coming from the scriptural standpoint and so right off the bat we had difficulty in our jury because there was uh, his his whole agenda was let's prove this is a bad law and my point was we're not here to judge the law we're here to judge whether the man broke the law let the legislature change the law right and uh, anyway, we can, I don't want to get into all the personal aspects of it. My point is this, and that works practically. You, you have somebody that understands why we don't drive too fast on the highway and they want to preserve other people's lives. They don't really need a speed limit sign. But you know who needs a speed limit sign? Someone who says, I want to drive as fast as I can, go as fast as I, for my own personal pleasure, so then you can prosecute that guy if he's driving too fast and he kills somebody. Even from our own standpoint, from just humanly speaking, Law does not make men good. It simply magnifies how bad we are. That's what the Bible says, the book of Galatians. And by the way, if, you, if we are going to be made righteous by our performance, then we have to go back to that law and keep it without blemish. James also says, if we offend in one point, we're guilty of the whole. Meaning, if I ask you this morning, eh, it's going to test you. If I ask you this morning, are you, not, not, I'm talking about Mosaic law now, I'm talking about the laws of our land. How many of you are lawbreakers, and how many of you here this morning are law-abiding citizens? So, please, let's have a list of, lift of hands. How many of you would say, I am a law-abiding citizen, I am not a lawbreaker? 
Now I got everybody scared. You're like, you are, you are tricking us. All right, how many of us are lawbreakers? Look around you, you're surrounded by criminals. <laughs> ben, you got to do something with that guy. <laughs> All right, how many, of, how many of us, let's help Ben, how many of you have had a speeding ticket? All right, you know what that makes us? Lawbreakers. See, but I, I keep the law. Well, we may as a general rule, but there's not a person in here who hasn't broken the law. Now, if that's true with human law, let's go to God's law. God says, thou shalt not covet. Meaning, don't yearn for something that God has not given you. Don't yearn for something and lust after something in your heart that you don't have, that's not yours to have. Don't have an affection for earthly things that you should have for God. And we're all already lawbreakers on that account alone. So if we're going to be justified by keeping the law, then that's what you got to do. He that, if you're going to keep it, the law, you got to live in the law. The Bible says you're going to live by it, you got to keep it. So then God tells us here in Genesis 15 and Galatians 3 and Romans 4, this principle that God does not justify a man by man's performance. Man is justified by his trust in the promises of God. And that is not something that is not a truth or a concept that was birthed in the New Testament It's right here in Genesis 15. When we meet Abraham here, Abraham is not yet circumcised. God would give that as a token, a symbol, that that uh, that that tradition to the nation of Israel as a as a token of his faith in God. But God counted Abraham just before he ever even had that symbol. It would be like saying a man is saved, but he's not yet been baptized. Abraham was just and had not yet received the sign of circumcision, which would become the emblem of. Uh, supposedly just people. And so Paul again in Galatians 3 will make that point. And so we come here to Genesis 15 because it's a root piece of Scripture where we understand, and I don't want to get dry on you this morning. Uh, we'll, we'll stay practical, but we understand what the Bible calls the doctrine of justification. How do you and I get to the place where God will treat us as though we've not offended Him, though we really have? How many of you know this? And we we talk about this often, and parents can appreciate this, and young people that are getting older can appreciate it because you're further removed from when you behave this way. You take a little child that has disobeyed mama or daddy, and often they become just sweet as a cupcake when they've done something wrong. Because what they want you to do is act like they've not done wrong when they have. And I believe we can understand, just by way of introduction, some level, at least a little bit, can understand God's perspective when when that child, any parent worth his or her salt, is not going to say, well, I know they did wrong, but I want to be a forgiving person, so I'll just act like they didn't do it. It's not going to help that child. That's going to teach that child that doing wrong and sinning and disobeying, being deceitful is okay, and that I'll always treat you the same. And what's happened in our world, and this is important in the context of this message, is we've been told love is acting like no one ever is wrong. That's not God. Love is being truthful about wrong and extending mercy through justice. That's what God does. God did not sign out His justice so that He might be loving, nor did He check out His love that He might be just. The Bible says, by mercy and truth, iniquity is purged. And so then we see that all characterized in this account and what we'll read about it in Romans and in Galatians, Hebrews, a few different places. I'll just reference Galatians 3. I don't believe we'll turn there in this 
message today. But let's look at the text again. I want to look at four things this morning that will help us get some understanding out of this. And that is, starting in Genesis 15, let's consider the promise that God made. The reason we start with the promise is God said, Abraham believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. That believed in the Lord doesn't mean he believed there was a God. The Bible says of the devils in James, uh, we're told that the devils said, thou believest there is one God, thou doest well. The devils believe and tremble. A man asked me last week, we were having a conversation about salvation. He said, well, doesn't the Bible say every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? I said, oh, it does. He said, well, everybody will be okay, right? I've had this conversation with this man before. I said, no, that's very different. You'll bow, everybody will bow one day because you have to because you'll see him as Lord. That doesn't require faith. Faith says, I take him at his word. So Abraham is not just believing that God is. He is believing that what God told him was true. He believed in the Lord, and he counted him for righteousness. So God had made Abraham a promise. Abram, at this point, made him a promise, and Abraham believed God told the truth, and that became his righteousness. So let's consider the promise. For context, turn back, if you would, hold your finger to Genesis 15. Turn back to Genesis 12 a text many people are familiar with, Genesis chapter 12. Abram was still living in Ur of the Chaldees, a land of idolatry, and the Lord said, I want you to come out of there and go to a place that I will show you of. Abram believed him then as well. The Bible says in Genesis 12, 1, Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make of thee a great nation, and I will bless thee. And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all families of the earth be blessed. So he tells Abraham, as you well know, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Well, that was chapter 12, chapter 13. He and Lot part ways. Chapter 14, Lot gets in trouble. Abram goes and defends Lot, delivers him from the the, the king of Sodom and so forth, and out of a, a warfare situation. Coming to chapter 15, chapter 14, Abram is loyal to God. He is loyal to Melchizedek, who is a type and picture of Jesus Christ, there in chapter 14, and refuses to take the rewards from the king of Sodom offered him. So meaning, he says, nope, don't want anything to do with it. Well, now, after refusing that, after winning a battle, it's he and the Lord speaking again. And the context of this is Abram says to the Lord, God says, I'm thy shield and thy exceeding great reward, meaning you don't need what the king of Sodom offers you, you have me, Abram. You have a relationship with me, your creator. And Abram said, verse 2, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. And I'm getting just a little ahead of myself, but the context of this promise Abram's going to get is Abram says, God, you told me you're going to make of me a great nation, but I don't have any kids. So there's an impossibility set in front of him. You said you're going to, you made me some promises about the future. But those promises are impossible as things stand at present. You know, you and I can look in the Bible and we see the kind of person God intends for us to be. You can read in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23, about the fruit of the Spirit being love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and temperance. And you read about that and say, "That's, that's a blessing. That's what I want to be. That's what I would like to be. You can set out to try to produce all of that and utterly fail. What often happens, we look into the Word of God and we see the kind of person God created us to be versus the kind of person we are. And we say, God, you made those promises, but that's not who I am. God, you told me, here's Abram, 
you'd make of me a great nation, but I don't even have children. He's being very honest and forthright with God about his own difficulty understanding how God's going to do what God said he's going to do. I believe this. One of the best things you can ever do is just be honest with God. God doesn't need any of us to flatter him. He doesn't need any of us to put on airs and pretend we're something we're not. And so I believe Abraham got a great deal of help from God because he approached the Lord sincerely, honestly, truthfully. And so the promise God makes is in response to Abraham saying, Shall I, is, is this Eliezer going to be my heir? Is he going to be my son? How's this going to work? Verse 4, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven. Tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, unto him, so shall thy seed be. So the promise, number one, the simplicity of it is this. Abram says, I don't have children. You've told me I'll be a great nation. Am I supposed to make some kind of a, a substitution here? So is Eliezer of Damascus, is he supposed to be my son? And God says, no, your own child that will come out of your own bowels. Now, that might seem, okay, fine. Except at this point, you can prove with Scripture between Genesis 11.30 and Genesis 12.4, Abraham is between the age of 75 and 85 at this point. But at this point, he and his wife are already, even though people live longer in these days, they're already well past their childbearing years. The simplicity of the promise is, no, Abram, you're going to have your own child. You, you will. You don't, but you will. You know what God's promising? He is promising him a miraculous birth. We'll come back to this before the message is done. Said Abraham, I'm going to do something with you and your wife that's going to require a miracle. By the way, miracles and magic are not the same thing. I had this thought this week. Magic is man being so skillful with his hand that he can trick your eye. God never tricked anybody. God is not so skillful by sleight of hand that he can make you think he did something he didn't. A miracle is when God steps out of the side of the boundaries he has created because he's God and acts outside of that in his own power, beyond man's power, and he does something that's beyond our power. Every time a person is born again, it's a miracle. And what God promised Abraham, the specifics, a very simple promise. No, you're not, Eliezer, you're not going to have to substitute someone for your own child. You'll have your own. It'll, this will be a natural-born child. God promises him a miraculous birth. And he promises him multiplied blessings. He says in verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Meaning you're going to have so many children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren that they'll be beyond being able to be numbered. I asked you today how many of the descendants of Abraham are populating the earth today. What's the number? Anybody know? Even though they've been severely persecuted, sought to be exterminated on multiple occasions throughout our history, there's more than you can number today. God kept his word. He always does. But you know what? Let me ask you this. If I said to you, those of you who know me and my wife well, you know, we think that within 20 years we could have maybe 20 or 25 grandkids. How many of you think that would be hard to believe? That means each of our kids get married and have two. That's not hard. So we think by the time we die, if the Lord lets us live till we're 80, my goodness, we might have 30 or 40 grandkids and who knows how many great-grandkids. If you have 10 kids, that's not that hard to accomplish. But God's telling Abraham, you're 75 to 85 years old. Let's say Abraham and Sarah had 
you know, a child uh, every couple, three years till they die. What God's promising is impossible. He's 75 to 85 years old. He and his wife, the Bible says in Genesis chapter 11, uh, verse 30, that Sarah was barren, meaning they wanted children and she was not capable of having children. If you're 75 years old and your wife hasn't had children yet, she's not gonna especially in an age when there weren't doctors to deal with those kind of issues. We all agree. What God is promising is an absolute impossibility. May I say this? We're getting, again, a clearer picture of God's way of salvation versus man's way. Cain planting a ground, tilling the ground, working hard, and giving God some fruits and vegetables, that's not impossible. That is what man can do. God's way of salvation is not possible by human effort. You know what? That's how we know you don't get saved by going to church. I'm all for going to church. You know that. But you don't get, you are not made righteous by going to church because that doesn't require a miracle. Anybody can walk into a church building. You don't get saved by simply getting dunked underwater. Anybody can do that. You do not get saved by trying to keep the Ten Commandments. Unsaved people can do it. You and I do not get saved by doing what man can do best. What God is saying here is Abraham... I'm promising to do something for you that is provably impossible. You're too old, your wife is too old and barren, yet is God's promise clear? It's clear. You're going to have a child. It'll be your own natural-born baby. So he promises a miraculous birth, multiplied blessings. Not only a birth that would be a miracle, but that your offspring is going to be more than the stars of heaven. God would repeat this promise over and over and over to Abraham. Abraham at this point is between 75 and 80. It'll still be another 20-plus years before this promise is fulfilled in the birth of Isaac. There'll be a, a hiccup in his own faith along the line, and we get Ishmael out of his... Uh, what I was discussing with another preacher yesterday, Abraham's pragmatism. Well, I've got to help God keep his promise, so he took a different wife. You know what he did? He did what was fleshly possible. Ishmael was not a miracle. Ishmael was the brainchild of flesh, and that's why Ishmael still bears the fruit in the world today. He does. But Isaac, on the other hand, would be a miracle birth, and that's what God promised. He promised a miraculous birth and multiplied blessings for generations to come, let her see, if you would, if you're taking notes, the promise, the simplicity of it, very clear what God promised, the specifics, a miraculous birth, multiplied blessings, the significance. What's on the line here? God's name. If God does not give Abraham a child of his own, naturally born, then God is a... Got it. If God doesn't do what God says, then God is a liar. Abram had left Ur of the Chaldees trusting that the God who told him so could be trusted. This is the same God said, I will give you a land that I will show you in time to come. And Abraham had believed God then. Now Abram's faith is being severely put to the test by God saying, "You're gonna, I want to give you something that Abram knew in his own human reasoning was humanly impossible. And yet what's on the line is God's own good name. God had said, I will make of you a great nation. Now God is telling him how it's going to be done. This is how I'm going to make a great nation of you, not by a substitution of your servant for a son, I'm going to give you a natural-born son. So the promise we see in verses 4 and 5. The persuasion is seen in verse 6. Look how hard this is. And he believed in the Lord. Meaning it was very clear what God promised him, and Abraham said, I believe you. And he did. I don't know that Abraham said it. He just did. He believed that what God told him was true. May I say this? You and I have multiplied promises that are applicable. There are some promises in this Bible that don't apply to us. 
as far as specifically some promises made to specifically to this group or that. But how many promises in the Bible that are made directly and specifically to us today? And when God makes a definitive statement, you you and I have to decide, is the person who made that promise able to be trusted? God's promise to Abraham was abundantly clear. It was specific, it was simple, and it was significant. And the Bible says, Abraham, Abram, he believed in the Lord and he counted him for righteousness. Two things, the basis of Abraham's belief. What did Abram believe? What God said. God made a statement. The child will be yours. I'm promising you a birth that Abram knew in his own conscience would be a miracle. And I'm promising you that your, star, your seed will be as the stars of heaven. Abram, by the way, couldn't imagine that. Could he imagine what it was like to have a son? You can only imagine what you've experienced at some level. Couldn't imagine it. You have to, we, we even, again, our imaginations are built at least on some level of experience in this life. No, couldn't imagine it. Couldn't explain it. But he knew what God said. Help me this morning. Jesus says in John chapter 3, except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. Please somebody explain that to me. What does the new birth look like? When you're born, when you're given spiritual life, God makes it very clear. It's an event. It's something that takes place. And without it, you cannot go to heaven. You're not even part of God's kingdom unless you're born again. Meaning, as you are naturally, you're not fit. So you have to be born again. I was preaching to the men in the jail this week, and I, I so desire to impress this upon their hearts and minds. I said, fellas, you do not need to turn over a new leaf, uh, change your direction, be a better person. You must be made a different person. You are not good enough as you are. God must make you an entirely different person. <laughs> How many of us, if you've dealt with people, at all, trying to serve people, minister to people, help people, help people get a better direction. How many of you know the hardest thing in the world? Look, you can help people improve their lives, but how many of you know changing another human being is absolutely impossible from a human perspective? That's where often many people end in divorce. Somebody said, I married this person knowing what they were. For 25 years, I've tried to change them and found out it doesn't work. So we're done. Truth? That's often what happens. You can't change another person, but God can. You realize God says for you to go to heaven, you've got to be made a new person. Not a better person. Not an improved person. Not a, I heard somebody say, somebody turns over a new leaf, be careful, it's often dirtier on the other side than it is the side that's facing up. <laughs> Truth. Abram got a promise that he knew was naturally impossible, but he knew who it came from. Romans ten seventeen. so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 still says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. John three sixteen. we know so well for a good cause. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Got a question. Is that a definitive statement? It's definitive. Met a man last week. He was talking about interpretation of the Bible. He said, well, so much of it's up for interpretation. I said, you know, I, I hear that a lot. But let's try a verse. Let's try one. And he was very, very cordial man. We had a good conversation. He said, Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I said, do we understand what that verse means? He said, yeah. I said, that verse is not up for interpretation. It is self-interpreting. John 3.16 is very, very similar. For God so loved the world. Don't put a different meaning on the word world. It is what it says. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever, let's not put a different meaning on whosoever, it means what it says, believeth in him. Isn't that what the Bible says that Abram did? He believed in the Lord. He took him at his word. Jesus said, I am come a light into this world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. But he said, I am come a light in this world, and he that, that cometh to me shall not abide in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Repeatedly, the promise of Jesus Christ is eternal, not temporary, eternal life to those who trust him. Either he's telling the truth or he's lied. That's where Abram was at. God said, no, Eliezer will not be your son. I'm going to give you a natural-born son. We're, I'm going to do what only I can do. And the basis of Abraham's faith was what God said. Abraham didn't get up and think, say, I feel like God's going to do a miracle. God told him. God promised him. And so he just took God at his word. And so then the basis of his persuasion, the blessing of it, the Bible says he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Meaning when Abraham believed God, God was, how many of us believe, know that Abram was a sinner? Genesis chapter 16, he will lie and say that Sarah wasn't his wife. Last time I checked, lying is a sin, especially when you lie about your wife and danger her to protect yourself. That's what he did. So we know that Abram wasn't saved or made righteous by his performance. We're not advocating lying. God cured him of that. Got out of his life. But my point is this. Abram believed the Lord and the blessing was the Lord said, because you've trusted me, I count you as righteous. Abram believed in the Lord, and he counted him for righteousness. Number three, not only do we see the promise that was given, its simplicity, the specifics, it was a miraculous birth of multiplied blessings, the significance, God's own name is on the line. Abram believed the Lord, he counted him for righteousness. That's his persuasion. Number three, the performance. If you turn to Hebrews chapter 11, we have some, some commentary in the New Testament on the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8 through 13. We, we've seen a couple of weeks ago, verse 7 on Noah, and we transition to Abraham here. It says in verse 8, By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country. We're in verse 9, Hebrews 11. Dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Through faith also Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore sprang there even of one and him as good as dead, so many as the stars of the sky in multitude and as the sand which is by the seashore innumerable. Verse 13, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. The performance of God's promise was, number one, according to his own promise. God fulfilled this. Remember what we said in Genesis 16, Abram, under the, uh, the, the influence of Sarai, says, basically, you get the idea, we're not going to have children, we're going to die, and this promise of God's not going to come so... And so they took it upon themselves that Abram would take Hagar to be his wife and they would pretend that Hagar's child was theirs and they went up with this crafty little thing to try to help God keep his promise and it didn't work. No, this was done according to... God said, you'll have a son of your own. You know the rest of the story. Thirteen years, by the way, between the birth of Ishmael and the birth of Isaac. Thirteen years of broken fellowship with God. To our knowledge, there's no communication between God and Abram for thirteen years. Now, God did not count him as unrighteous, but he sure lost fellowship with God for a time, did he not? When you and I step outside the realm of faith and start living by our own human reasoning, we're going to get in trouble. 
doesn't mean you're not saved. It means you're not in fellowship with God if you've been saved. But Genesis 16, Abram tries to do that. Later, Hagar is used as an allegory. Paul calls it of those who try to do works of the flesh to make themselves righteous. No, the performance of God's promise is according to what he said. Abram's own child birthed with Sarah a miracle. It was a miraculous birth. It was according to the power of God, the performance of God's promise, meaning it was done in a miraculous way. Sarah, as uh, her, her womb was now dead, Romans 4 says, Abram, and as good as dead, Hebrews 11 says, meaning when it came to childbearing, they could have as many children as dead people. They were dead when it came to that aspect of their lives, yet they had a child. It's according to the power of God. The performance of God's promise is not according to our power. It's according to His power, according to the purpose of God. By this, what I mean is, Abram, how many, how many children did Abraham get to see before he died? Now, he had a number of children with Keturah before he died. But as far as he and Sarah was concerned, when Abraham died, he had one child. Last time I checked, the sky has more stars than one. You know, if you read Genesis 25, you could count... Uh, on a couple of hands and feet, <clears throat> how many children Abraham died ha- had when he died? Uh, he and Keturah had a number of children together. His, his, the, the wife he took after Sarah's death. My point is this. You could easily number Abraham's children when he died. Yet not as many as the stars of the sky, but didn't God promise that he would have as many as the stars of heaven? And isn't that the way it is today? Aren't there more seed of Abraham today than... You can count. My point is this. God keeps his word according to his own word, according to his own power, according to his own will, and according to his own way. We don't bind God and we don't listen. We don't have to see God keep all of his promises to know that he will. That's why it's faith. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. I've never seen heaven. May I say this? Your persuasion of the reality of heaven is not going to be reading a book by someone who says they spent 90 minutes there. That's not it. Your persuasion of the reality of heaven is going to come out of this book. This is where God has spoken. Amen? Your faith must be built on the Word of God. God, according to His power, according to His own promise, according to His own purpose, could God have multiplied Abraham's seed as many as the stars of heaven before Abraham died? Sure He could have. Why didn't he? So we can understand what faith is. I believe God because God is trustworthy. I don't believe God because I have always seen him keep every promise. I've seen him keep promises that he's... You know what? How about this? Abraham knew the miracle that Isaac was. If God can give me Isaac, I know he's going to give me seed as the stars of heaven. God kept his word here, and I know God's going to keep his word here. You see, faith in God does not... Seeing is not believing... Believing is seeing. And so then, God's performance of his own promises according to his own word, according to his own power, according to his own purpose, and abounding to whose praise? Do we say, wow, what a father was Abraham? Or do we say, what a God that can give an old man and his wife who couldn't have children a baby by his own power and raise up a nation like he did? You see, salvation doesn't bring praise to man God's salvation brings praise to God. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Someone say, Abraham, how old are you? Well, I'm 99. And that little baby you're holding, is that your great, 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 great grandchild? No, he's my own. 
Oh, you're fibbing. No, he's mine. Oh, you must have married some 20-year-old lady. No, my wife's 90. I'm 100. Oh, you're lying to me, you liar. No, how'd you do it? I didn't. God did. It's what he promised. God did a miracle. Someone says, oh, you think you're righteous? Yep, I do. How'd you make yourself righteous? I didn't. Jesus Christ, he did. Lest any man should boast. God's righteousness brings boasting on one, and that's him. God gets the glory, not us. Amen? So we've seen the promise made, the persuasion of Abraham, the performance of God's promise, and then the parallel we've been touching on all through the message. But go to Romans 4 now, if you would. Romans chapter 4. And by the way, we are very safe in making this parallel because it's exactly the parallel that the Word of God itself makes. It takes us back to Genesis 15 and Romans 4 and says this is what salvation is. This is how a man is justified. Speaking to a a young man last week, and the question put forward to him was, if you met God today, what would he do with you? He said, well, I've never sinned bad enough to go to hell, and I've never been good enough to go to heaven. I guess I'm going to purgatory. The problem with that is there's no purgatory in God's book. That's just man's creation. And the tr- problem is that's, that's not the truth. But in asking him, how are you going to be reconciled to a holy God? We've sinned against him. How are we going to get God to treat us like we're not guilty? Many today say, well, change God. Just change God. Have a God that is so loving that he never sees sin in anybody. But that's not true. Our sins have offended him. The Bible says in the fifth Psalm that he is too holy to look on iniquity. He won't do it. It's not going to enter in his presence. You read the last book of the Bible, Revelation 20. Nothing's going to enter into the holy city that defiles. Not a liar, not a whoremonger, not a fornicator, not an adulterer, not an idolater. Well, then how in the world are people going to get into that city? Through the blood of Jesus Christ is how. Not through what we've done, but through the one we believed in. We believe in him and he imputes the righteousness of Jesus Christ to us. Romans chapter 4, verse 1 What shall we say then that Abraham, our father, as pertaining to the flesh, hath found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now someone will... Especially if they know their Bible and know it well. They're going to say, wait, 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 hold on, time out. James chapter 2, verse 17 through 24 says Abraham was justified by works. And by the way, that is what it says. How many you notice what, what the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says? If Abraham were justified by works, he had to wear up to glory, but not before God. Romans 4 is talking about man from God's point of view. James chapter 2 is talking about man's faith from man's point of view. And you can read James 2 and find that to be absolutely so. James says, show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. You know how my faith in God is justified with you? I've got to work and show you I believe. If I say I believe something and won't ever do it, you know I'm a liar. My faith is in vain. So let's proceed. Romans 4. What we find here is Abraham's pattern of believing God and being counted in for righteousness. Verse 4 again of Romans 4. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace but of debt... But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Now, you can read on your own the verses in between. For time's sake, we're going to move on down 
uh, to verse 16 of Romans chapter 4. Verse 16, Therefore it is a faith that it might be by grace, to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead, and calleth those things which be not as though they were, who against hope believed in hope that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so should thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body now dead. When he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb, he staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone. Here is our parallel. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've met people that look at the prospect of getting saved and they say, there's no way. I can never live the life God wants me to live. You're right. That's why you had to have a Savior die for you. But may I say this? The work of Jesus Christ is twofold. He died in order that you, your punishment was poured on Him. But He lives in order to give you the power to live a holy life. Many draw back from salvation knowing the life I'm living is wicked. I deserve God's judgment. I can't perform the life of a Christian. You're right. That's why Christ must do it in you. And if God can raise Jesus from the dead, can He not empower you to live a life that pleases Him? Abraham said, I can't produce a son. And God would have said, I know, but I will do it in you. God's salvation is a miracle from God. People say, does God still work miracles today? Have you ever met anybody living a holy life? You met a miracle. No human being can do anything but pretend to be holy. Only God can actually make a man holy. It takes the indwelling Spirit of God to give you power to overcome your wicked fleshly propensities as well as my own. There's no person that can truly live a godly life outside of God dwelling within. The pull of sin is too strong. The the prowess of the devil is too great. And you and I are no match for sin. But Jesus Christ took it on and conquered it. And therefore, by Him, we live the life that He's called us to. And when we believe God, God not only pardons our sin by the death of His Son, He empowers godliness through the life of His Son. You say, you seem worked up. I am excited about the truth of the gospel. If all you think of is the gospel is Jesus died for me, that's wonderful, but He lives for you. You notice what Romans 5 says? Therefore, being justified by faith, or 4.25, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered for our offenses. So Jesus had to die because of our sins. He was delivered for our offenses. Ah, and was raised again for our justification. It is Christ in me that makes me righteous before God. And that's the parallel. God promised Abraham, you as you naturally are cannot produce what I'm requiring in your life. And Abraham says, I believe it. But God says, but I'm going to do it anyway. And Abram believed God. And guess what? God, Abram and his wife had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had sons named Jacob and Esau. And Jacob had 12. And they had children until they became a mighty nation, millions strong, over a 400-year period in Egypt. And God kept his promise. And today, 
The parallel for us is the same. The pattern of Abraham believing God concerning a miraculous birth and multiplied blessings. You know what salvation is? God says, I am willing to make you new. I am willing to forgive your sins and give you eternal life if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. You mean when I trust Jesus Christ, a miracle literally takes place inside? Absolutely. Pastor, how do you know that? Not because I'm not going to take because I felt it. Nope. Because of my experiences. I praise God for the experiences of trusting God. You know how I know it? He said it. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish. That's what the death of Christ did for you. But have everlasting life. The believer in Jesus Christ is the possessor of eternal life. So how do you know? God said it's a promise. And Titus 1, 2 says, God who promised eternal life cannot lie. He's the only one I know who cannot lie. Amen? Amen. Let's go, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5 as we close. 1 John chapter 5. The Bible says this concerning eternal life. I don't know about you, the only life I've ever seen and experienced is temporary life. <laughs> so envisioning and imagining eternal life is something I have to see by faith. I don't see it by experience, but it is the record that God has given. First John chapter 5, verse 10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar. Let's just use our illustration, our pattern of Abraham. If God said to Abraham, Abraham, you're going to have a son, and Abraham said, no, that's impossible. I reject that. I'm going back to Ur. I came here believing I was trusting a reasonable God, and you're telling me that me and my old wife, who is barren, are going to have a child. We all know that's impossible. Of course it is. If Abram had done that, what would he be calling God? A liar, because God's promise was definitive. So, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record, that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Here's the, here's, here's the record of God's Word. God says, I have given to you eternal life. I promise you a miraculous birth. It's called being born again. And your job, your part, is to believe what I promise. My Son came and died for you. My Son is living. May I say this? Your eternal life is not the acceptance of a religious system. It is putting your trust in a living person. Jesus Christ himself imparts eternal life. One last text. We have to read one more. Titus chapter 3, and then I'm done. Titus chapter 3. For the believer in Christ today, what assurance that our salvation is based on the promise of God. Titus chapter 3. Our justification is obtained by faith. When we take God at his word, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. Titus chapter 3, verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. That regeneration is the giving of miraculous life. The washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through... Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
that being justified by His grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. May I say this this morning. What Abram did in Genesis 15, the Holy Spirit of God chose in Romans 4 to say, this is how a man is made just. You want God and I want God to view us as if we've never sinned? We must acknowledge that the penalty of our sin is what Jesus suffered on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Uh, The chastisement of our peace was upon him. We must understand that the price tag of our sin in its full is what Jesus bore on the cross. And if I reject that, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins. You'll have to face the wrath of God. God says, but your sin has been paid for. You know what? How do I, how do I, I just believe God. I believe that all the punishment and the penalty I am due has already been paid because God said so. And then he says, not only so did he die, but he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. The power in the gospel is that the one I'm preaching about, you can speak to in a moment right now and say, Lord Jesus, I want the life you've promised. And you know what? He'll give it. How can you say so? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Is that a promise? I just got to take him at his word. God's salvation is not complex. It's just humbling. I don't get to say, God, I'm deserving. I have to say, I'm deserving of Calvary's cross, but one took it for me. And you promised that if I'd put my trust in your son, you would save me from what I deserve. And I believe you. Is that not it? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. My question is this. When did you believe it? That's when you got saved. If you're hearing you say, by the way, we're not talking about hear, believe. We're talking about hear, believe. Meaning you've accepted it's an absolute truth as much as you accept that you know there's cars sitting in that parking lot. That not only do you need salvation, but God's only way of salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead. You know, I've got to acknowledge, if I believe God, I have to admit that God did a miracle 2,000 years ago. And that's going to require as much of a miracle today if I'm going to go to heaven. Because I can't produce the life that he requires. I can only receive it as a gift. For for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The question again is, when did you believe the promise of God that if you trust his son, he would save you? When you say, I haven't, then you're not saved. We are justified by faith. The question is, is the author of this book trustworthy? He's promised by faith in his son, he will treat me. That's what justification is. When I trust his son for my salvation, he will treat me not as a foe, but as a son. I'll be justified freely by not my merit, by his grace. So if you hear this morning, you say, I've never taken God at his word that if I would trust his son, he would pardon me and give me eternal life. I've never done that. I urge you, today be the day. God's speaking to you right now and convincing you. You may be here and know the facts about it, but never truly believed in your heart. And if the Spirit of God is saying, you've not believed me, you've not taken me at my word, trust him. It's a decision. Trust is a decision. Now, it's a decision that Satan will fight you over. It's a decision your flesh will oppose. But if the Spirit of God is working in your heart this morning saying, you know what, I've promised eternal life to those who believe on my Son. And it's, the Bible is filled with that promise. And God is convincing you, you've not believed me. You're calling me a liar. Listen to him. I urge you. Repent toward him today. Lord, you've been right and I'm wrong. Maybe you're here this morning and say, no, I've done that. I've done, I, I, am, I am trusting Christ. 
then rest in the promise of God. He's done what he promised he would do, and he will the work he's begun in you, Philippians 1, 6, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. This question, again, as we close, are you justified this morning? Does God see you as righteous or unrighteous? That depends on whether or not you have believed him concerning salvation in Jesus Christ. Do you believe God in the record that he has given of his son that salvation, righteousness is found only in the person of Jesus Christ? Do you believe him? Is that what you believe because it's what God has said? When you believe God, you're righteous. That's God's way. 